this has been a long time coming, y'all. My name is Connie Morgan, and I am thrilled to be bringing you the very first episode of the Free Black Thought Podcast, or FBT Podcast, as you will often hear me refer to it. This has been such a long time coming, and I'm so blessed to be part of it. Thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting us. The FBT Podcast is weekly, with an episode dropping every Wednesday. It's the typical long-form interview style, but we hope to bring you some of the big names in Black heterodox thinking, as well as folks you have never heard of. But we are kicking off with someone you better have heard of, none other than the co-founder and president of Free Black Thought, Eric Smith. Eric is an associate professor of rhetoric at York College of Pennsylvania. He is also a visiting scholar at the Cato Institute. Although he has eclectic scholarly interests, his primary work, of course, focuses on the rhetorics of anti-racist activism, theory, and pedagogy. Smith's recent books include A Critique of Anti-Racism and Rhetoric and Composition, The Semblance of Empowerment, and The Lure of Disempowerment, Reclaiming Agency in the Age of CRT. You can find him on Twitter at Redders of York. Without further ado, let's get to know this brilliant guy a little bit better. And remember, there's no such thing as the black perspective. They're just black people with perspectives. You're listening to the Free Black Thought Podcast. Doctor, professor, president of FBT, Eric Smith. Welcome to the Free Black Thought Podcast. You forgot I'm... Pisces. Pisces. <laughs> Philadelphia sports fan in general, right? This, and this is a... Yeah. Oh my gosh, you know all of it. What's your Myers-Briggs? Uh, ENFP. ENFP. Wow, you're an ENFP. You're my ideal match. I'm an INTJ. I didn't of know that. Of course. Everything <laughs> makes sense now. Yes. These are all things that we have to uh, unpack during the during this episode, but of course, you know, because you are part of Free Black Thought, but you were the president of Free Black Thought. You were one of the founders of Free Black Thought. Um, I'm grateful for you because you're the reason why I get to do this today, or you're part of the reason why I get to do this today. And so this is going to be our first kickoff episode of the Free Black Thought podcast featuring you, the president. And I think, you know, for people who have been following us for a while, they probably have a decent idea of who you are, um, the work that you do. But for people who are maybe being exposed to Free Black Thought for the first time through the podcast, I think we need to lay a little bit of a foundation. Like, who is Eric Smith? How did he come to be sort of what I consider a a rising star in this space, in this kind of anti-racial essentialism, um, critiquing critical theory type of space. What do you call it? When people ask you, like, what is it that you specialize in or do? What do you say? Uh, the first thing I say is rhetoric. You know, I, I think that's the foundation of everything mm-hmm. I do. Even with the um, free black thought stuff, um, you know, that all that came from issues I had uh, with race within the field of rhetoric and composition. Uh, so even, you know, uh, that motivated free black thought, let alone some of my other endeavors that are more specifically rhetorically oriented. Um, so I would first and foremost say that, you know, I, and, and then I, I talk about the rhetorics of diversity, equity and inclusion, um, you know, anti-racist rhetoric versus anti-anti-racist rhetoric and, and, and things like that. So rhetorician. Do people normally know what that means? I mean, especially people outside yeah. of academia, when you say rhetorician, do their eyes just go crossed? 
Um, well, you know, some people do know what I'm talking about, but most people don't. I just I study persuasion. You know, um, how do people use language or some kind of foreign communication to persuade, to influence their worlds, right? To get people to do uh, certain things that they feel they need to do, uh, things like that. So that's the study. And so, so for me personally, I actually didn't know that this was a specialization until I until I met you, really. The last time I remember focusing on rhetoric specifically, where we spent a lot of time just like getting that beat into us, like how rhetoric is used and different strategies and that kind of thing, was in my AP English class in high school, which is probably saying something really sad about <laughs> education in the United States because, well, I wasn't an English major or anything like that in college, um, but I was in communication and public relations where rhetoric yeah. is important. So where does, who is actually supposed to be really keyed in on rhetoric? Is it the English literature majors or where, where should people be getting their, their training on rhetoric? Uh, well, it's, it's English and communications, really. Um, when it's done in English, it's mostly the written word. Um, and communication has room for the uh, you know, public speaking and, and, and things like that. Um, I went the English route, right? So um, I got a... a a master's degree in American literature, primarily uh, nonfiction. And um, I got a PhD in English with a concentration in language, literacy, and rhetoric. Uh, so that's how I came about okay. this. Rhetoric was synonymous with English departments until like the mid to late 1800s when it started to switch into literature, right? It, it went from, you know, um, how do you speak eloquently to what does this blue curtain symbolize? You know, and and it stayed with the latter for mm. most of the uh, remaining time. Um, rhetoric has has had a resurgence, however. Um, honestly, starting uh, in in my opinion, um, in the uh, late fifties, early sixties, uh, it started coming back as a legitimate um, field, right? Um, and um, it's grown even bigger. We have departments of rhetoric now. It's not part of the English department or communications. There are rhetoric departments now, you know, so um, it's wow. definitely wow. rising. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's, that's so fascinating. So let's rewind a little bit. And cause I'm like, as a little kid, obviously you didn't know what rhetoric was. How did you grow up? Where, where did you grow up? How did you grow up? And let's sort of like walk our way to how you got to where you are now. So little, little kid, Eric, where was he? What was he doing? Um, I was uh, born and raised in Mount Holly, New Jersey, uh, southern New Jersey, not northern New Jersey. That's a very different state. Um, and uh, yeah, I was there from the age of four until uh, high school. Then I went off to college. Uh, before Mount Holly, I was uh, my first four years of life were in Fort Dix, New Jersey. I was born in an army base. Uh, my dad was um, okay. a uh, sergeant in the, uh, in the army. And, um, you know, I didn't really know him very well when I was really young because he was always stationed somewhere, you know, um, yeah. you know, Germany or Korea or, or whatever. Um, so, you know, when he came back for good, we finally retired and came back for good. I'm, I'm like, I'm seven, you know, <laughs> this, this guy's been in and out of my wow. life, you know, and now, Oh, okay. So, Oh yeah. You're my dad. Got it. You know, but your parents were married. Yeah. 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 
So that's kind of an example too of when sometimes even when the parents are married, dads can be sort of out of the picture given whatever the profession is. The military was, being a great uh, example. In the country, you know what I mean. His reason was right. valid. Very honorable. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. So, you know. But anyway, yeah. So, um, so I grew up there. Uh, very, uh, very white um, town at the time. Well, neighborhood anyway. I grew up in a, a, a subdivision. Uh, and uh, it was a very white one at that. The school system was extremely white. Integration was a, a relatively new uh, burgeoning thing, even in places in the north, um, and mm-hmm. you know, so so uh, that was interesting, you know, because um, eventually, when you're a kid, you don't think about race, and you start realizing things, and then you start realizing things, right? You know, and, and then you just hit this wall of hopelessness and depression, you know, and um, and uh, it it wasn't hard, it wasn't easy, it wasn't easy. Um, people were not. Uh, pulling punches when it came to their thoughts on black people, uh, whether they be adults or children, you know, so that was fun. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, that was like, that's like the first um, 14 years of my life. And then I went on to a more diverse high school. I still lived in that neighborhood, but I went to a more diverse high school after that. So you were bullied quite a bit as a kid is what you're saying? Yes. I, yeah. I should have just said that, right? Instead of rambling for but, by, uh, but uh, adults minutes. would say things too. Yeah. 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 Isn't these these are your teachers or these are just people in the community or Yes. All of the above. Yeah. <laughs> and what did how did your parents teach you to react or handle that? This is difficult for me to talk about, not because of any kind of emotional distress or anything like that, but because um I didn't tell my parents. Oh wow! Yeah. So and and, and so I they mean, they thought everything was just hunky dory and life was good. Uh yeah, yeah. So I dealt with it myself, and it's no fault of it theirs. wasn't. You know, yeah. I didn't. This is not a, a, a value judgment on my parents at, at, at all. I just thought I'll handle it myself. You know, we don't need any more problems. You know, I'll, I'll just I'll I'll mm-hmm. deal with it. I did so. And you have siblings. Yes. Did they have a similar experience or were, were, did each of you have pretty individualized experiences with that sort of thing? Um, my, um, my three siblings um, ahead of me, my, my older siblings, um, were relatively grown when we moved to Mount Holly. Uh, they were army brats. They're in army bases, you know, uh, all, all yeah. over the place. Um, I did have a little sister who grew up in the same uh, environment in school. And uh, I feel like things were easier for her. I don't recall many things uh, happening. Um, one person told me that I kind of paved the way so that her her uh, her way wouldn't be so hard. But I don't know if I believe that. Um, I just, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I have to ask her. Okay. And so then when you moved to the, so, so when you moved to a more diverse high school, that wasn't like any kind of conscious decision that your parents made because they had no idea that there was right. any problems. You just that's the high moved you went because to. your family moved or? No, that's the high school I went to. Okay, that's, that's, okay. That was the high school. Yeah, there's a um, elementary and middle school were one system. And then you went, everybody went to this regional high school uh, with a bunch of towns coming ah. together. In yeah. 
Okay. Okay. Does that make sense? So the diversity that was in that high school, did that, did that change your experiences or, or, or was it still, was there still kind of animosity across racial lines? Oh yeah, it's definitely animosity across racial lines, but I got most of the uh, bullying from the other black kids because I, I acted too white, you know? So <laughs> I was uh, socially Ooh. constructed by my bullies, you know, according to them. And, um, you know, so uh, that was a problem uh, for them. And in and, and many ways, they were worse, you know. So I went from the pot to the fly, frying pan, as they say. Uh, oh, man. Okay. So what can you do? You have any examples that they gave of you being, quote, too white? Um, well, it, it was generally I, I do have specific examples that I don't want to share, but I can I can generally tell you that I was um, too considerate. Uh, I was too uh, nice, you know. I, I cared about things I didn't care about. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I, 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 I. They used to really get on me because I would work hard in practice in basketball, and they didn't want to work hard. So if I was working hard, it made them look bad. So they had to make sure I wasn't working hard, and I wasn't. But I wasn't always verbal. Oh my gosh! So you get you get through high school. Do you know that you're going to go to college right away, or what? What did you do right out of high school? I knew I was going to go to college when I was eight. It's just that's just something that it didn't occur to me not to go to college. Like the 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 idea of not going to college didn't occur to me. Right. That was another difference between wow. Okay. Me and and, and a lot of the uh, other kids. Not not to say that all the black kids didn't care. I'm not talking about all the black kids. Okay, I, I want to be clear about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I um, I went to college. Um, I majored in English. I, I knew from the jump what what major I wanted to be, and I wanted to explore okay. some of the experiences I had through literature, through fiction. I was going to write novels, not scholarly essays, not scholarly mm. books or anything like that. I was going to write novels about this stuff, you know. Um, but okay. I eventually did not do that. I went on to uh, get a uh, master's in American Lit and a PhD in basically rhetoric. So at what point did you kind of decide that you were going to keep, you're going to stay in academia then? Um, Or did you, when did you realize like, oh, I'm, I'm going to be a professor. Like this is my career track. Um, It was November of my junior year. That, that I can tell you. Um, the, the, the details around that very interesting days, uh, that is fodder for another time, right? I'm not going to go into that right now. It is interesting, though. And I, it was kind of like a spur of the moment realization, you know? Um, really? Yeah. Um, that Friday, I had no intention to go into grad school. That Monday, I asked my favorite professor, how do I go to grad school? What do I need to do? You know, um, how do I, I want to be a professor. Like, it was, it was over a weekend. Yeah. Wow. And so at that time, you didn't necessarily know that you'd be a rhetorician down the road or you did know that that's where you were headed? I was going I was going to be an English professor, you know, at, at mm-hmm. that moment. You know, I, I thought I'd uh, get into that and may focus on uh, a lot of the issues that, um, you know, I wanted to focus on, uh, especially uh, race and uh, American popular culture and, and stuff like that. But um, then I found rhetoric and I was like, oh, this is this is what I've been dealing with. This is it. Yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah. You found you found rhetoric before you graduate before your undergrad was complete or it like as a part of your in, in graduate school. Yeah, in graduate I didn't school. know it existed okay. either. 
you know, and then I, as I okay. was getting my master's degree, I discovered it and the rest is history. Okay, cool. And then, so were your views on race pretty consistent throughout your adult life or how, like, where have you evolved or maybe you haven't evolved? Maybe you've been just really consistent in your views that you have now have kind of been your views since the beginning. I think I've been consistent. You know, um, I mean, there are some things that uh, I may have changed my mind on here and there, little things. But in general, um, this I am the person I've always been regarding race. You know, and that's, I think that's really I was going to say, I think that's pretty unique, actually. Like, um, I think that's a unique story. People tend to um, ebb and flow, if you will, <laughs> um, in this space. Or maybe they don't ebb, they just flow. So that's that's actually like a unique a unique story. A lot of people that we're going to feature on the podcast and people that I follow, you know, they, as a young person, as a very young person, you know, 18, 19, they have one viewpoint and then they kind of change over time one way or the other, either in any mm. direction. Right. But you've just been consistent, which I think is what makes you so appealing as a rhetorician, right? Like consistency is, is key. Well, yeah, it, it's consistency is key. Uh, but the, the way you express something need not be consistent. You know, the, 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 the content, you know, the uh, message in general you're trying to convey can stay the same. But based on the audience, you got to switch things up, different examples, different uh, uh, allusions, uh, things like that. Um, I have always been what I now call a classical liberal, right? That's, that's mm -hmm. what the consistent thing is. So, so apply, you know, uh, diversity, equity, inclusion to a classical liberal um framework instead of the illiberal framework we see today and you, you have me so okay that's yeah. basically it now i would say you you are you are a public figure in this space um you know you've written you know you've you've been published in various like publications you have books you give speeches you do podcast interviews now you're actually is your is your term a a, a fellow visiting scholar for um, Cato, yes, visiting scholar. I, you know, honestly, I don't know the difference between all the things, <laughs> like a visiting scholar and a guest fellow and all yeah, that. Yeah, there's, there's Actually, overlap. Can you there's, shine some light on that? Yeah, there, there's a. So is, they're interchangeable sometimes. Yeah. And how long have you been with Cato? Oh, just this year, um, starting in January, and I go back to academia proper in August. So this is literally just a visit. So you, the point being, you're, you're all over the place. You're definitely making your mark on the world um, and on this conversation. But when did that start? Like, when did you start to actually become more of a public figure, if you will, um, writing and speaking about um, anti-racism rhetoric and other related topics? Wow. Um, well, I, I started becoming public uh, and outward facing when I realized that being inward facing, uh, facing my field of uh, rhetorical studies, wasn't going to get anything done. Uh, I saw some uh, pretty detrimental and disempowering um, understandings of race, diversity, equity, and inclusion, anti-racism. Um, and I saw some detriments uh, pedagogically, like in the teaching strategies and, and things like that. And expressing uh, what I saw uh, did not elicit a kind response, uh, nor did it elicit a civil response. And I don't mean civil as in polite and nice. 
I mean, civil is in, I'm going to listen to you. You're going to listen to me. We're going to talk this out, even if you insult me. Right. Um, that wasn't happening. Mm-hmm. It was all shut up, Eric. Uh, so I said, okay, well, mm. I got to go someplace else. I got to be as loud as possible. Uh, mainly because in my field, especially, but, you know, in, in academia, generally, there aren't very many people pushing back on um, contemporary anti-racism, uh, critical social justice, uh, the, um, the, the mode of civil rights going on right now. It's not the mode that went on in the 60s and 70s. I, um, so in order to push back at that, I had to actually leave that realm of academia and go out into the public. And I, you know, started finding people asking them if I could tell my story. Um, more and more people started saying yes to that. And more and more people would see the videos and ask and just built from there, you know, but, um, but yeah, this is um, uh, my, my goal was to like leave the field well, go outside of the field to gather the cavalry and then come back and, and uh, save rhetoric. Ah. But, um, but it, it turns yeah. out I've, yeah, I'm just building bases with the cavalry out here and, uh, and, and figuring out <laughs> something else later on. So, Okay. So where did you first start to – who first brought your attention to anti-racism rhetoric, at least to a point where you're like, wow, this idea is really like taking hold? Like was it someone like Ta-Nehisi Coates or you read you read White Fragility back in the day or, or what was kind of your like, oh, light bulb moment where you're like, this is my mission to counter this? Oh, the light bulb moment mission – uh, point was uh, 2019. Um, okay. when there was a, yeah, there was a talk at a uh, conference that basically uh, echoed everything I I said to you earlier about pedagogy and and disempowering uh, ideologies around race. And uh, yeah, and then I said something about it, and the response was my um, you know my origin story, my come to Jesus moment, mm-hmm. whatever you want to say about it. And uh, from then on, I've been quite vocal and quite, uh, I, w- I don't want to say fixated, but um, focused. Yeah. Okay. Let's go with focused. Uh, quite focused on free black thought and everything that organization is trying to do, as well as a burgeoning organization I'm directing called uh, the Project for Mutual Persuasion, uh, which is about rhetoric. Oh, right? uh, okay. Doing rhetoric, I'm going to say the right way, but doing r- rhetoric the relevant way. Right. We are a free and civil society mm. talking, um, you know, uh, putting our ideas out into the marketplace of ideas and selling them effectively. All of these are, you know, uh, results of rhetorical skill. Right. So I want to remind people of that. Uh, and that's what mutual persuasion is. OK. And I think it's actually important to note, too, that you were, you know, you were working on this before this huge explosion happened in the cultural and political space, which was George Floyd, right, in 2020. You know, you just said that your light bulb went off in 2019. Um, for a lot of people, it didn't happen until until later, until after uh, until after George Floyd. And, the, and, and BLM, Black Lives Matter, already existed before George Floyd, of course. But, I mean, something just happened after that. I think I don't need to explain. Everybody who lived in America understands, mm-hmm. you know, all the different kind of conversations um, different activism that was happening after George Floyd. And I have um, I have your book here that I have read, A Critique of Anti-Racism and Rhetoric and Composition. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. But this book was written actually before the George Floyd incident happened. And Free Black, but Free Black Thought as an organization was sort of at least somewhat a response to 
George Floyd, correct or incorrect? Can uh, talk about the origin of Free Black Thought a little bit. I mean, it, it in a sense, it was a response to George Floyd, but uh, these are things that um, some of the other founding fathers were dealing with before that. George Floyd was just the the watershed moment. You know what I mean? I, I was dealing with this stuff in grad school in the 90s, and I just told you how old I am. Right. Um, but it, it was it was happening then. You know, I, I just didn't take it seriously. I was mm-hmm. like, okay, this guy's an idiot or, you know, whatever. This isn't <laughs> going to become a movement, right? And it's a movement. Mm-hmm. You know, so I'm making up for mm-hmm. lost So how? Okay, yeah. And I think effectively, right? Like free black thought has been just growing by leaps and bounds. So... Obviously, a lot of good things happen. I'm a little biased, but a lot of good things happening there. How did you, because I get asked this question all the time, where's free black thought based out of? And I'm like, well, we're not really based anywhere um, because it's a bunch of folks coming together basically remotely online. And it's not even like it's five best friends, you know, who went to high school together and they grew up and started this organization. Can you talk a little bit about how you met the other founders and how you start something like this? Because I think people have ideas for organizations and movements and pushback in anything. It doesn't have to be in this space. It could be they care about rescuing puppies or something and they want to start an organization, but they're like overwhelmed at the thought of doing it all remotely or not, or do I need a hard building or how do we go about this? So can you talk about how you actually built the relationships with the people that you now um, run this organization with? Um, in the later, the um, second half of 2020, I guess, at the fall of uh, 2020, uh, Jake Mackey found me on um, on Twitter. Uh, he saw an interview by Benjamin Boyser or somebody, and he reached out and said, uh, you know, uh, we should do something. <laughs> I, I think we can do something. We can we can start to have some kind of significant pushback on this kind of stuff. Um, and he had Dave Gilbert with him um, at the time, and and then uh, you know Michael and Jason and you would come, and, and Lee would come eventually, and uh, and that's kind of how it grew organically. Um, and I mean, obviously, I couldn't do this on my own. Right. Nobody. Well, mm-hmm. I, I don't know anybody who could do it on their own, but but we have a no. team here, a team with different, you know, somebody has a knowledge of, uh, you know, how to acquire a 503C, right? Um, uh, whatever that is. A 501C3? 501C3. <laughs> I was blanking. I was like, wait, wait. when I said, I was like, that's not right. 501C3. <laughs> I don't know how to do that stuff. You know, I do now mm-hmm. because I watched people do it, but I didn't know at the time. You know, somebody else had to had to uh, get into that. Um, I could build websites, but you you don't want to see a website I'd build. You know, right. uh, that somebody else was able to do that. You know, and uh, it kind of it kind of happened organically like that. There's there's no like set. I can't tell you. Okay, well, step one was this, and step two was that's just not how I've ever really been. You know, you you take your opportunities where you see them, and next thing you know, you're being interviewed. <laughs> right. And and just to be clear to our audience, when before Jake reached out to you, you guys had never met. You didn't know each other at all, right? No. This is two strangers connecting over yeah. the internet. Yes. Which yes. you can do that, people. You can just slide into someone's DMs, shoot them an email, cold call them, and start, and start something. It's totally possible. That's one of the beautiful things about the technology we have today. I agree. Um, so the Free Black Thought is 
was the, there's the compendium of free black thought, which is basically a list of, of resources for people. And it's organized by different topics. You can find articles, um, people to read that will give you kind of more of a heterodox point of view on said topics. And then there's also the journal, which is the journal of free black thought, which is on Substack. Did you know that there was, did the, the compendium came first, right? And then let's do a journal. Mm -hmm. Um, what, was the journal pretty much like right away? You're like, okay, this is the next step. We need to start publishing folks or did it kind of take a while? Uh, the, I feel like the journal, I feel like the journal was uh, always there. It wasn't, I know for a fact that it wasn't, but I, I, I feel like we've never not had that journal. It was, it was relatively early on that we started to, to uh, get that going. If I'm not mistaken, it wasn't right away. Obviously um, it was like, it was, it was into uh, the first uh, year or so of Free Black Thought, if I'm not mistaken. And boy, am I proud of that journal. You know, I, I really am. We, we publish great people. We publish great ideas. Uh, we publish controversial things, you know, um, because we are about viewpoint diversity. Um, and I, 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 if you would have told me how successful, how well done that journal is, um, I, I, I would have had my doubts, not because I don't trust the group we had, but because, wow, it's hard to do that. <laughs> you know, it, it's hard to create a new journal that's interesting and worth reading these days. It's a journal about everything. Right. You know, it, it's, it's like creating a podcast. You know, everybody's got a podcast. So, so if yeah. yours is going to rise above others, it's got to be really special. I feel like the journal is approaching that status and I couldn't be happier. Absolutely. And big shout out to Jake Mackey, who's, um, I help him with the editing, but I mean, he's definitely the backbone of that journal and is why it is. And he's not totally the only reason why, but he's a huge part of why that journal is successful. Yes. Okay. So let's kind of transition to, um, your book, a critique of anti-racism and rhetoric and composition. Like I said earlier, this book was published in 2020. So it wasn't, this wasn't an outgrowth of George Floyd. It was already in the works. Um, Eric was already working on it. And then George Floyd kind of happened. Um, Free Black Thought came into existence and it kind of was all like divine timing, I think, that all these things came together at once. Um, but I'm going to ask you a couple of questions about some of, the, some of the things I highlighted in the book that I think our audience might be interested in unpacking a little bit, especially obviously if they haven't read the book, um, this could encourage them to go pick it up and learn more. Um, But in chapter one, like right off the bat, you have a line where you say, ultimately, it is not a sense of empowerment, but a sense of disempowerment that is the true engine that drives identity politics. Um, I love this line, and I think it's counterintuitive to a lot of people. Can you unpack that a little bit? Um, What exactly you mean by that? And how, I guess, how someone would know whether they're actually being empowered or not? All right. Um, well, I finished that book over three years ago, so I have to try to remember, you know, uh, <laughs> you know everything. I mean, I, I, I'm I, making I this interview this hard question. for you. Yeah. Um, well, it's, it's 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 fatalism. You know, um, it's uh, you know, there's a it's us versus them. It's oppressor versus oppressed. You you would not be able to get ahead because a white person will try to stop you at every turn. Uh, so you should do things this way. You should not care about. Uh, this person's intentions. You should you should um, intervene when you hear a microaggression, uh, even if the person who it was directed toward may not see it as a microaggression. 
You know, you, you have to do all mm-hmm. these things. Like it was very, it was very uh, fatalist uh, and and pessimistic, and it denied the ability to acquire agency in this world, right? Agency, the ability to influence your environment, uh, a an internal and external locus of control, right? Uh, but this was. This was non-existent. You don't have agency because the white people are going to keep it from you. And if you think you have agency, it's, it's an illusion, right? Um, that is all very disempowering. I mean, that's telling somebody you can't win, so don't try. And, um, right. you know, I, uh, I'm so glad they didn't get to me. <laughs> I'm so glad this stuff is after I got out of school. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm dedicating as much time as possible to remedying that effect. You make the observation that minority groups are now allowed or encouraged to make arguments based off of their lived experience while the real adults have to put some arguments together. Um, and I think some people, to, to me, this makes a lot of sense. I, I totally get the point and, and I agree with you, but how does one separate or not even separate, but include their lived experience? Because our lived experiences are going to influence no matter what side of the argument the space that we're on so how do we recognize the difference of only relying on our lived experience and actually creating those real arguments from a rhetoric or rhetorical point of view like how do you sort of blend those things or how would you advise someone blend those things in a logical way that that makes sense I, when I talk about lived experience, I, I am not poo-pooing storytelling or the power of narrative a, at all. Mm-hmm. What I'm doing is poo-pooing. Can we keep using that term? Uh, I, yes, I'm not please. happy. I'm not happy with using a story as the entirety of your argument. That's what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you can have an antidote uh, in your argument, a story illustrating your points of what you're trying to make, or you can have the points you're trying to make. And then here's an example of, you know, from my lived experience, right? They have to be together. Uh, Aristotle said something about this in his uh, treatise on rhetoric. Uh, He said, um, if you have, you know, um, a bunch of stories, you know, uh, talking about a similar experience, that's better, right? Because you're, okay, a lot of people are going through this thing, uh, this similar thing. So there must be some kind of pattern here. That's good, but people aren't doing that. People are saying, well, this happened to me, so, you know, uh, we should change this policy. Or this happened to me, so we should fire this person who I've never met because it's probably happening to that other Black person, too. You know, Um, there's too much Mm -hmm. guessing going on. There's too much um, projection of one's experience onto the world. And that's what I have a problem with. Um, The the storytelling is very, very powerful, but it has to have a bit of... um, you know, it has to have a logical progression too. It has to have a an argument uh, that can accompany that, or you know, the story can accompany the argument, or what have you. Right. So, is it is it bad to step into um, a conversation or debate if you don't have a live lived experience related to the topic? Um, it depends on the topic. You know, um, it, it, it. I mean, I, I wish I could have an example off the top of my head. <laughs> But um, if you're if you're talking about, you know, the the trauma that is experienced from a certain kind of event in one's life that happens to a bunch of other people as well, you know, um, and somebody who hasn't gone through that decides to give his opinion, 
right? Uh, give his argument for something. Um, one could say, hey, buddy, you don't really know what's going on here. But that being said, the onus is on the person who did live that to explain it, right? Because mm-hmm. the point is to have as many people as possible understand this so that we can do something about it. So that everybody right. agrees that we should put our energy and resources toward fixing this thing. So, no, um, somebody shouldn't interject uh, if they don't have the subject matter unless, or they don't have the experience, unless they're asking, hey, can you explain this to me? You know, uh, okay. can, can you can you explain this a little clearer so I understand it? And I'm going to ask you response questions, you know, to be as clear as possible on this. And you cannot be offended by these mm. uh, response questions, all right? Because if I understand what you're talking about, I will be better able to help you because I will know why I'm helping you, you know? Right. I won't just be going through the, emo- the emotions or anything like that. I won't be following something blindly. I want to understand, you know? So it's, how should I say this? Um, lived experience isn't your only ticket into the conversation, but there's a way to get into that conversation properly if you don't have that lived experience and it's more listening than talking so would do you apply that then to kind of issues that are specific to um to gender so like obviously i'm a i'm a woman i don't i haven't experienced what men experience men don't experience what women experience does that mean that basically if i'm talking about men's issues or talking to someone i'm just there to listen and learn or where's the line where i'm allowed to have opinions about but no, you can, things you can going say, well, on in the men's space. I mean, you can, you can express your opinion. Sure. You can express your ideas. You can express uh, books you've read and things like that. Uh, I guess the, the issue is to be open to the fact that you may be wrong. That's all. You know, be open to the fact that you may not have all the facts. You know, I, it, when, when somebody doesn't have the lived experience I'm talking about, I don't get offended. I, I engage them. Right. Um, there is a possibility that they've read something to give me insight, although I've had the lived experience. That's a possibility, mm-hmm. you know? So um, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's okay to, to talk and things like that. But if you don't have that lived experience, then you, you should make a concerted effort to listen, you know, to figure things out, to realize you're in new territory. Um, there's a um, – analogy uh, by Kenneth Burke, uh, who is a philosopher and rhetorician from uh, um, the last century. And he talks about this idea of the Burkean parlor, like life is a parlor and it's a big conversation going on. And you walk in, you don't just start talking. You don't know what they're talking about, right? You have to listen first to figure out, okay, oh, okay, I get it now. Okay, now I have something to contribute. And, and, And that's when you talk. Right. And, and that's 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 this as well. You know, if you don't know about something, listen, you know, um, and then then put your uh, your oar in, as Burke would say. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And it seems like something that you've kind of repeated a few times. Um, and when you have these conversations is that don't get offended, don't get offended, you know, be willing to be open and listen. And like yeah. you said, be open to the idea that you could be wrong. What are some strategies? Uh, because. I'm, I'm a millennial and then there's Gen Z coming behind me and over and over again, we're told that we're, we're snowflakes, we're weak, you know, we get offended easily, which I think there's a lot of truth to that, to be honest. What are some tools, what are some strategies for people to enter these conversations, even if they feel so passionate about it, you know, they have very strong opinions to not get offended and just take it all in with an open mind. 
Um, well, the long answer to that involves um, empowerment theory and a specific component called the intrapersonal, how we use rhetoric on ourselves, right? Um, and it's very, it can also be uh, summarized by a quote from Epictetus that I do not know verbatim, but I can summarize it. It, it, it isn't the things that happen to us, it's our reaction to the things that happen. So we have power to not be destroyed by this word, right? We, we have that power. There's no, people act like, some, you know, they don't have that power. You know, uh, they, they act like they don't have the choice to respond in a particular way. So just realize that, know it. Um, do your best to uh, be cognizant of it. Um, you know, the, the uh, ABCs of cognitive behavioral therapy, the, the activating event, the um, uh, the belief about that event and the consequences, right? The belief is where you got to stop and pause because mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be a particular belief. And Petitus went as far as to say, um, you know, if you get stabbed, you don't have to be upset about it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, it, it's you know, it, it's it's that. I mean, he he was being a bit overboard, but you get the point, right? Right. Um, right. We have a choice here, and and if you can stop and think about that, and it's. These are split second things. So it's easier said than done. It takes practice. But if you could stop and say, okay, I can, I don't have to respond to this in a way that will A, shut down the conversation or, or B, make things worse, right? Um, mm-hmm. I, can, I can respond in a different way. You just said something interesting too. You know, it takes practice to, to be able to manage your emotions, essentially, mm-hmm. using some of these strategies do you, is practice just by having more conversations? Do you self-talk to yourself while you're taking a shower? Do you have a friend that you feel safe with and you kind of play devil's advocate and go back and forth? How do you practice? Like if you're someone who wants to step into the public space, but you're just really nervous, how do you get that practice in? You, 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 you interject yourself in those situations. You, you go to uh, events, speakers that have opinions you don't have. Uh, you listen to the Q&A. Um, you participate in the Q&A. You put yourself in those situations, period. So yeah, you do find those guys. You do find those Burkean parlors, you know, and you sit down okay. and, and, and you listen. That That's that's the way to do it, uh, for sure. But that's skipping the first component, what I, what I call the intrapersonal, before. And I think that's something that has been a detriment to a lot of uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion trainings, even before the woke style came. You know, um, mm. we're skipping um, looking at ourselves as individuals. We, we skip that and go straight into how do I understand the world? And yeah. if, if you don't really understand yourself, you're going to trip and fall a bit. You know, when you're doing those things, you're going to project things onto this new situation from your past and not even realize it because you haven't explored yourself. You haven't explored how you talk to yourself, how you interpret certain things, the lens through which you see the world. You haven't investigated that. That is first and foremost. And it's the one thing most people seem to always skip. We have to stop skipping that. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's such a good point. And, and you say um, in the book as well, you say empowerment is both a process and an outcome, which I feel kind of embarrassed to say it, but I never really thought of it that way. I always just thought like more of it as an outcome, excuse Mm -hmm. me not the process part. And then when I read that, I was like, oh yeah, duh. It, you know, it is all part of, part of the same, the same movement, I guess. There aren't sections where one is like, where empowerment isn't, is happening 
like in isolation. Um, And that's kind of what you're getting at now, right? Like going through each stage, hitting the interpersonal first. That's a, that's part of that empowerment process. Yes. Um, After you, after you move into those Berkian parlors, what comes after that? The third component after I, okay, we'll call it the Berkian parlors. Okay. That's good. Uh, The third component is behavioral. Now different people, psychologists have different takes on this one, but from my research, um, it, it, it tends to be about working together with others as well, right? Teamwork, collaboration, um, which is which is a pretty powerful way of bridging gaps, right? Uh, if you have two very different groups who have what's called a superordinate goal, uh, they both need something to happen. They can't do it by themselves. They have to work with that other group, you know, who's mm-hmm. the out group, right? Uh, who they are not supposed to... Uh, to uh, interact with, they have to work with them to get this goal accomplished. Uh, that kind of repeated interaction and that kind of shared shared interest and shared care can go a long way um, in bridging gaps. But the behavioral component of empowerment is really about how to effectively work with others. You know, mm-hmm. um, the the repeated interaction and the the um, um, bridging of um, gaps or whatever. Uh, between different groups, that is kind of an inadvertent benefit of it. It's, it's really about how do we get together with other people, other individuals, right, and work to make the world a better place. What if you can't agree with people on what make what is a better place? Like, is that just you just have to go back to to kind of square one and keep working with them until you can find some common ground? Because I think that's the issue, right? A lot of people, they think, well, a better place is all these things mm. that you and I consider like toxic um, yeah. in in the in the word of de- world of dealing with race and that kind of thing. Um, how do you how do you bridge those gaps? If you're at the behavioral, you kind of already done that. You know, um, that's mm-hmm. uh, the you're talking about the interactional or the Burkean parlor uh, component. Yeah, I guess the, I'm rewinding a little bit. Yeah, yeah, that's that's what you're talking about there. And you're going to have people who are aligned with you and you're going to have people who aren't, which is why rhetoric is important. You know, um, how, how do I explain this to this particular person with, with his particular history and, and interest uh, in a way that makes him understand where I'm coming from, right? And it's not lying, right? It's, it's translating your truth uh, to mm-hmm. another person. And, you know, if you're good at that, you're going to get more people on your side than than uh, otherwise. But that doesn't mean you're going to get everybody, which is the beauty right. of a civil society. Right. We have the freedom to associate. We can go find the people who agree with us and work towards, you know, uh, achieving that goal. The people who don't agree with us can find their own people. And if we meet later on down the road and butt heads, hopefully our rhetoric can help us. If not, right. then we have to, you know, that is. You know, those are the uh, trials and tribulations of a deliberative democracy. You know, you you, you gotta, mm-hmm. you know, you gotta have people who don't agree with the way uh, you see things, and you have to deal. Right, right, okay. And so this is related, but uh, I'm actually kind of asking this like selfishly for myself. We all have people that we love—family members, friends, neighbors, whatever—who we disagree with on on certain things, and you know, we supposedly, you know, we're going to have conversations over coffee, um, you know, playing video games, doing the social things that we do with people um, who we disagree with. And that's fine. You know, we, we need to be able to get along with and, and cohabitate. And I'd say be friends and have close relationships with people that we disagree with. But if there's something that you are, 
you know, you're continually trying to use these rhetorical strategies to, and they're using rhetorical strategies on you too, right? You guys are having a back and forth. I think I'm right. You think you're right. At what point, and, and maybe you don't have the right, right answer for this. At what point do you just kind of let it go? If ever, like, you know, are there, are there signs that like, it doesn't matter if I'm the best rhetorician in the world, this person's never going to sure. change their mind or move an well, inch I mean, my I, direction. I don't like saying the word never, but, uh, you know, there are times when, you know, you, you, you realize you're not going to get anywhere. Um, that's why I embrace uh, a concept in rhetorical theory called Kairos. Um, it has many interpretations. Uh, window of opportunity uh, is a uh, big one. An opening, right? You, you'll find an opening sometime in the future where you can say, okay, now I can talk about this. Mm-hmm. Now he'll get it because he had uh, this experience okay. or I had this experience or whatever. So you wait for the chirotic moment. Kairos is the confluence of time, place, subject matter, uh, people involved, all those different things. And if one of those things changes, your rhetoric has to change a bit. So you you you, you wait for mm-hmm. the proper kairos to revisit that conversation. Um, that's the response I have to that. Um, but like I said earlier, you know, you're not going to get everybody. The, the 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 goal is to right. get almost everybody. You know, that should be your goal. Right. You know? Get as many people as possible. Right, right, right. Totally. Okay, well, that's that's good advice. You know, sometimes you just got to wait for your moment. And it might take yeah. years, right? It might take right. a really long it time to have years. that that opportunity, which is hard to hear. Very hard to hear. I know. Um, but I'm going to keep that in I mind know. as I move forward with my relationships with people, too. <laughs> so we are closing in on an hour here. So I'm going to hit you with the quick fire questions. Um, we have 10 questions here. The goal is for you to not think about them too hard and just answer as quickly as possible. And then after that, we'll let you have the floor for your final closing, closing thoughts and um, close out the interview. Does that sound good? Uh, sure. Okay. All right. Quick fire questions. Question number one, the Black Panther or Blade? Or the Black Panthers? Wait, what did you say? The Black Panther, this... The Black Panther, as in the superhero, or Blade? Oh, oh, oh. oh. Man, I can't answer that quickly. <laughs> that's that's a 20-page scholarly essay. Um, okay. <laughs> okay, oh, I, want you to, I want you to write that for the journal. <laughs> yeah, maybe I should. Oh, that is good. Um, you know, for most of my life, it would have been Blade. So let's just go with that. What is your go-to mixed drink? I don't have mixed drinks. I either do straight whiskey or beer or wine. Hey, a man. <laughs> uh, what is the best part of being black? Um, uh, the beach. I don't have to put on all that sunscreen. <laughs> Are the best things in life really free? Yes. Booker T. Washington or Du Bois? Du Bois. What but, is but- your hottest... I know, I know it's I know it's like a rapid fire thing, but like I like them both. But Du Bois, I I feel like, and also Du Bois shares my birthday. Like he was born February twenty oh, third. Well, yeah, so so there's to. also that. You know, yeah, but, but you I, I feel like I relate more to Du Bois, although I don't agree with everything he said. Okay, fair enough. What is your hottest take? What is my hottest take? Yeah, your spiciest take. Oh God. You're trying to get me in trouble. I don't even know. Um, the thing about hot takes is that they're they come and go because they're hot. You know what I mean? I, I don't <laughs> I don't really know what that would be. I, I'm sorry, I don't have an answer. 
to that. That's okay. What would your last meal be? What would my last meal be? Um, ooh, um, a large pepperoni pizza surrounded by sushi. Anybody in particular making this pizza? You have a favorite pizza shop? Um, well, I have a lot of favorite pizza shops. Uh, um, Archetype Pizza in York, PA. Name a sport you would like to see in the Olympics that currently isn't in the Olympics. Uh, name a sport. So how are we defining sport? Like uh, Any, board you games to define it. as well? However you want. They have breakdancing now in the Olympics. So Rock, paper, scissors. Okay. <laughs> I would actually love to watch that. Should churches, synagogues, mosques, etc. remain tax exempt? I, I don't know. I've, <laughs> I've, I've never given that much thought. I really haven't. Um, I'm sure there's an argument for both sides that I could find very compelling, uh, but I don't know what they are. You know, really. Okay. okay. Yeah. And finally, what is the best book you have read this year so far? The best book I have read this year so far. I've read a lot of books this year so far, and I kind of forget what they are. One is, it's about Nietzschean Buddhism that I find uh, very fascinating. It's written by a German woman and a Japanese man who are married and, and currently live in Germany. And they talk about the confluence of uh, Nietzschean Buddhism and some neuroscientific discoveries, um, which I find um, very interesting. Um, that being said, I'm, I'm blanking on the title. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll find it and we'll just put it, you know, after okay. this, we'll, we'll put it, we'll link it in the show description, but from but, your description, I already feel like I'm too stupid for it, but well, I mean, we'll, we'll link it anyways. May I say this? It's not the, and I, I, I love the authors for writing this and things like that. It's the reason why it sticks out in my head is because it's written for a lay audience, you mm. know, more so than all the other, I mean, this, this is a big book on Buddhism, right? That's Ooh, not yeah. going to be everybody's cup of tea. You know, and this book I have right here is just, I don't even know what to think about it. But the one I'm talking about, yeah, everybody can get down with that. Okay, great. Yeah, we will definitely link that in the description. That is our 10 questions. Final thoughts, closing closing arguments. What do you want to make sure our audience knows? Maybe some of your hopes and dreams and plans for free black thought in the future and anything else that's on your mind or that you need to get off your chest? Uh, well, I, I feel like I, I kind of... Uh, did that for the most part, but I, I can say that I, I think we need to, as a society, explicitly embrace classical liberal values, especially free speech and individualism. Um, those are the, individualism is kryptonite to wokeness. You know, uh, it, it can't mm -hmm. wokeness needs race essentialism. It, it needs group consciousness and things like that. Individualism, everything falls apart. And individualism done right, not at atomistic individualism, which is like you know. No man is an island. That's not that's not possible to be atomistic. You, you need people. We are interdependent with everybody. Uh, individualism is choosing with whom to be interdependent uh, sometimes. Mm -hmm. uh, it's choosing one's own path in life and, and, and things like that. You will find people, especially the postmodern academics, who say, uh, well, that's not really your choice. You were socially constructed. Well, I it's my choice to use my social construction in this particular way. I'm sorry. You know, there's there's still right. some free choice I have here, you know, about how to deal with, um, you know, those experiences. Um, 
And individualism is why I can hear something and not be offended. And another black person can hear something and be offended because we're two different people. Mm. Right. So we need to make individualism cool again. Yes. Oh, my gosh. I feel a red hat coming on. Uh, make individuals individualism cool again. Um, what would that be? Micah? Mika? Make individualism cool we'll again. Yeah. We'll work on it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll talk to the branding team that we yeah. have here at, at Free Black Thought. Eric, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I will obviously be talking to you always on emails and meetings and that kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. I think that this conversation was super great foundational interview for us. Obviously, you're going to be back on the podcast again one day because this is our baby. Um, And so we will just encourage folks to follow you on Twitter, read your stuff wherever it's published. We'll include all the links in the show description where people can find you and keep up with you and know when you're maybe going to be speaking in their area and all that kind of good stuff. Thank you. And I will see you at the next Free Black Thought meeting. You got it. (laughs) Free Black Thought podcast. Yeah.